Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you joining us online. We're grateful for you all to, to be joining us. We're grateful for all of you in the room to be joining us this morning. Um, I have a pet peeve. And let me just tell you about my pet peeve real quick. Uh, it's when I'm talking to someone and I'm explaining something or I'm, I'm pretty passionate, so I'm telling them about something that I want them to know or I'm trying to, to help them to better understand something and there comes over their face this look that tells me they aren't listening. Anybody been there? Yeah, this is a pet peeve of mine. Not only do I know that they're not listening because of the look of their face, but then I'll stop and I'll ask them, hey, tell me what I just said. And they can't tell me because they weren't listening. Some of you are like, yeah, we just had a fight about that in the car on the way here. Here's a little trick though. Actually, not a trick yet. Here's the other, the other side of this pet peeve. How many of you have been in that situation? You knew they weren't paying attention. You asked them about what you were saying and they repeated it back to you word for word. I used to get in trouble for this as a little kid. As a teacher would be talking about something and they think I wasn't paying attention and then they'd ask and I'd tell them what they were saying. Here's a little trick for you, uh, the, the person whose pet peeve lines up with mine. Wait three seconds. So stop talking. Wait three seconds. And then ask him. And here's why. Because your brain processes audio, it processes sound slower. And so when somebody repeats back to you word for word what it is that you were, said, were saying, they can do that without actually listening to what you were saying. But if you wait three seconds, that sound has gone into the brain and the brain has filtered it as something that they don't want to listen to or they don't need to listen to. Actually, our brains do this all the time. It's called selective filtering. And the truth be told is like your ears capture a lot of sound. In fact, there's a lot of different sounds happening in this room right now. And unless you are specifically trying to pay attention to some sound, your brain will most likely filter it out. And it does this because if you were to try and listen and pay attention to all the sounds in the room, it would be like uh, frying your brain with information. And so your brain does this on purpose. But, but the truth about that scenario that I talked about, that's a pet peeve of mine. The truth about that scenario is I don't really care whether or not that they actually are, are hearing my words, but here's what I do care about. I care about whether or not they are paying attention. Right, that they are able to do something with what it is that I'm saying. Because I, and maybe you were like me, I don't just talk to talk. Like most of the time, I use words to communicate, and I do it for the purpose of something happening. I'll give you a couple of examples. When my wife comes home, my wife is a preschool teacher, and currently she has three-year-olds in her uh, preschool class. But when she comes home from having a rough day at preschool, where literally they're not listening and they're picking their nose and eating glue, right? When they're doing those kinds of things, and she comes home having a rough day, and she's telling me about this rough day, she's telling me this not because she wants me to fix something about her class. She's telling me this because she wants me to empathize with her, to understand that her day was rough. So when she uses her words, she doesn't just want me to hear about it, but she wants to elicit a response. She wants me to have empathy. Or, or maybe uh, you are a parent of a teenager and you explain to your teenager over and over again about picking up their room and cleaning their room. And you want them to hear your words and it to translate into them picking up their room. 
the first time they're asked, or better yet, not having to ask at all, right? Or maybe, and this is me, maybe when you experience some kind of relational tension, right, a relational rupture, and this can be like with friendship, this can be between coworkers, this can be between uh, me and my spouse, it can be between me and my kids, me and my parents, but when I am offended or hurt in some kind of relational context, I have a very difficult time moving forward if the words, I'm sorry, are not actually spoken. I have a really hard time with that. And truth be told, this is only part of the issue when it comes to to people hearing the words we speak and then it eliciting some kind of response. Because truth is, when we we talk to them and, and and our teenager picks up their room for the first time, but then we have to keep telling them over and over and over again, and there's no long-term change, well, we still have a problem, right? If we're honest, we as humans regularly listen or hear without doing anything or changing anything. This is a regular practice for us as humans. Hearing something, reading something, they don't really mean anything in and of themselves unless they catalyze a changed behavior. And if we revisit those scenarios that I'm talking about, even when my wife desires empathy and I have empathy in that moment, the the actual overarching or, or maybe bigger picture is that that results in a better relationship between her and I. That, that empathy and that, that habit of empathy that can be formed results in a better experience of relationship for her and a better experience of relationship for me. The same is true with, with kids obeying your parents and, and that resulting in a better relationship for you and for them. Or, or in the sense of hearing the words, I'm sorry, when somebody makes a habit of owning their part of a relational tension or a relational disturbance, when so, like that results in a better relationship for the both parties involved. And here's what I want us to, to think about this morning. Because as we move into the text and as we move into our teaching, here's the idea. Central to the practice of hearing and doing something or, or listening and changing, central to that is the relationship shared between the source of the noise and the hearer. Central to that is the relationship shared. And as we come to our text today, we're, we're in this series walking through the book of James, and today is where we actually hit the part where James is given like the overarching thesis of his book. Uh, the overarching idea, the main idea that all of the other ideas are going to connect to and flow into and, and flow out of and be interwoven with. And that main idea is this. Do not merely be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And that's the main idea. That's the idea that all the others are going to flow in and from. And before we jump into God's word, I'm going to ask that you pray with me. So if you would, let's pray. God. Would you do what only you can? Would you teach us from your word? God, maybe to to some of us, these words are familiar. And my prayer is, is that the familiarity of it can fade away and that we can hear with, with new ears, that we can read with new eyes. 
we would not be merely hearers of your word this morning, but doers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now here's what it says in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22. It says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once uh, forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Then he finishes it up with this. If anyone thinks his religion or thinks he is religious, rather, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's it. Be doers of the word, not just a hearer of the word. That's pretty simple. Great news. Let's just all go and do that. We can go home right now. Actually, we could go to Studebaker's to get there early because, you know, if you're getting there, you better get there early or you ain't getting in. But here's the truth. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. James knows this. You know this. We, as humans, regularly hear things and don't do anything about it. We regularly hear advice from somebody who probably knows what they're talking about, who we've seen their life different because of of their uh, advice that they give, and and we don't do anything about it. There was a weightlifter once, and he said something to the effect of, uh, everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift heavy weights. Dave Ramsey says, don't take uh, financial advice from poor people. Right? There, these, these, these things happen in our life all the time. But James, what he actually does in the text is interesting because we kind of jumped into the middle of something. But James connects what he's saying to what he has already said in the verses prior. And in the verses prior, he's going to highlight what I said to be true at the beginning, which is that central to this idea of hearing and doing something different is the relationship between the hearer and the, and the sound. Check out verse 19. This is what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow uh, to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And then he goes in, but be doers. Verse 20 says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God is the the key to relationship that, that I'm talking about. In fact, righteousness of God can be defined as conducting one's life by the will of God according to his standards. And so there's this relationship of, between God and, and the hearer and pursuing this righteousness of God. And James says that it, this should be the chief aim of Christians. This should be the thing that we pursue above all else, is this righteousness of God. And if, here's the truth, if God is who he says he is, which James would, would say that he is, but if he is the creator of all things, And if he knit you and I together at the same time as uh, knitting the universe together, and and with he probably knows a little bit more about your and I's life than we do. 
as he is the one who created it. And so James says, pursuing his standards, pursuing his will above all else is, is what we're after. It's this kind of relationship that, that we share with God that will find its most full expression when we do this. The best relationship for us and the best experience of this life possible is living and pursuing the righteousness of God. And that's the anchor to which he says, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And then James jumps into an image. He jumps into an, uh, some imagery that helps us to better understand something. This is what he says again. Verse 23 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. So he's given the, uh, the opposite, right? This is an image of the opposite of a hearer and doer. It's somebody who hears only. He says, If that's you, you are like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forget what or forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James says, if, if you're a hearer only, it's like looking into a mirror intently. Now, notice that word intently. Because you can look in a mirror and just kind of like glance at the reflection there, Right? You can also look into the mirror and not be looking at yourself, but be looking at things in the background or, or whatever else. But James says, looking into the mirror intently. This is like inspecting your face. Some of you did that this morning. There was like a real inspection that went into the mirror. I got to be honest, I've gotten to that point where I have avoided doing this with any regularity because every time I do, the face in the mirror gets older and starts to have wrinkles. But here's the truth about a mirror. The mirror is only going to reflect that which is actually there. Or you can't look into the mirror intently and be hoping that you see something that isn't actually there. Like you can't, let's say you, you're, you've just started a, a diet or exercise program or, or maybe you started one at the beginning of the year and by now that's long been forgotten. But you look into the mirror hoping that you see what would have been the results of doing that. that. That doesn't happen. No, rather, when you look into the mirror, it reveals what's actually there. And this is precisely James's point. He says, for anyone who looks, uh, or for if anyone is a hearer and not a doer, uh, he is a man who looks intently at his natural face. He looks into the mirror and sees what is actually there. As people, there is a way in which we actually are. Like when we strip down all of the facades and all the masquerading, like when we get down to the real core of who we are, there is, there is a way in which we actually are. And James says that that's in contrast to the righteousness of God to this standard of God, to this will of God. It's in contrast to that. Now, I want to pause for a moment because we live in a culture where this would, would be some tension. Our culture likes to say that everybody is basically good, that there's this basic goodness to everyone. And not just that, but, but when it comes to defining that which is good or true, 
Our culture would say, you define that within you. You define that which is good or that which is true. But here's the problem. If you play that out to its end, if you define what is good and true and I define what is good and true and those are in contrast to one another, who's right? And you may think, well, that's just what's right for you and this is what's right for me. But, but what about when you play it out to like the real ends where somebody like Hitler believes that, that the world is a better place without a specific race of people And that's what he has defined as good and true. And that's how that plays out. But you see, that mindset, that ideology, it can't flesh out. Both cannot be good and true. Which is why James says what he says. That there's actually a way in which we naturally are, and it's in contrast to the righteousness of God. That's why he adds this in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres. When somebody looks into the law of of God, when somebody looks into the righteousness of God, it reveals the contrast. It unveils that which is different about how we actually are, our natural selves, and how that is different than God's will, different than God's standard different than the righteousness of God. And when it reveals that, this is where the challenge of James comes in at the very latter parts. He says, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by doing. One seeking to live their life in accordance with God's standards will be blessed in doing so. I'll have you know, this isn't the first time this appears in our scriptures, right? Jesus teaches this very same thing in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. There's an obedient side to this faith in Jesus. But... The same temptation that existed for us today is a temptation that exists for them to hear the word of God and do nothing. Paul, he addresses this actually in 1 Corinthians 8. He talks about what happens when we simply hear and do nothing. Paul, he's using a principle and he's talking about the application uh, with food sacrifice to idols, but it's the principle that, that we're after here. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge by itself puffs up, but love builds up. He says this knowledge by itself, it, it puffs up. It makes one prideful. It results in a a puffing oneself up. It does not result in the righteousness of God, that which we are after. This threat that James saw for the early church in Jerusalem, right? This is who this is being written to. It's the same threat to our church, that we would be a, a church full of people who are hearers only and not doers. But listen, Christian obedience, right? 
Christian obedience, obeying Jesus and, and seeking to do that, it's not something that fully ever becomes habit. It's something that we have to do every day. It requires this daily putting on and putting off principle that we find in Ephesians. In fact, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you'll take up your cross daily to do so. This Christian obedience is something that, that happens day by day. And not just that, but when we seek to live out, when we seek to live in the righteousness of God, when we pursue that to its end, there's this direct connection to blessing. In fact, throughout all of Scripture, there's a direct connection between receiving the gifts of God and doing the will of God according to His Word. That those who are blessed by God live in the union, the marriage, the bringing together of truth and of action. And the good news for you and I is that James doesn't just stop with that. He doesn't just give you an example of what it means to be a hearer only, but rather he then goes on to kind of summarize and give three big picture ideas of what it looks like when you pursue the righteousness of God in your life. Now, granted, he's writing to the church in Jerusalem, but listen to, to how applicable it is to you and I. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The very first thing James says is that it's the bridling of the tongue. When we seek to live in accordance to the righteousness of God, one of the main indicators that we are seeking to do so is the speech that comes out of our mouth or the speech that doesn't come out of our mouth. There's this, this instance where bridling the tongue is, is an overarching piece of what it means to pursue the righteousness of God. Again, he continues, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He says, to show mercy and to show love to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to those who are most vulnerable in your society. Widows and orphans were incredibly vulnerable during this time. They still happen to be. But to visit them in their affliction, to show mercy, to show love to them, this is another characteristic of what it means to pursue righteousness of God. Lastly, he says this, uh, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, I don't know about you. How many of you struggle with staining your clothes when you eat? Yeah, some of you, I just saw somebody hit the person next to them. It's fantastic. Listen, this happens to the best of us, okay? But there's something interesting about the, the idea of stains, right? When you know, and maybe you know that you struggle with staining your clothes with food that you eat, but, but when you know that you're going to be eating something that carries a stain, typically you try to avoid that stain, or you try to take measures to avoid getting a stain. Something like at Skyline where they offer you a bib and maybe you're a recipient of the bib, right? You try to remain unstained. When it comes to the righteousness of God and pursuing that, we do the same thing. We avoid those things that stain us. We avoid those things that have lasting Impact. We avoid those things and put up guardrails against and maybe avoid altogether the barbecued ribs of life that stain us. James here, what he's doing is he's reaching into everyday examples, right? So we're talking about the church in Jerusalem. These would have been everyday examples for them. 
Everyday examples that they would have seen all around them. And the good news for us is these expressions that James reaches into are the same things that apply to us today. And the temptation that, that was for the church in Jerusalem is the same temptation for you and I to hear these words and do nothing different. But having faith in, in Christ, being a disciple, it doesn't just mean trusting in Jesus as Lord of your life, but it also means seeking to live in obedience to him. C.S. Lewis, this is how he said it. C.S. Lewis is an author from, from the 20th century, and, and quite honestly, C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential Christian authors of his time and, and still is today. If you've not read his stuff, I would highly recommend it. Chronicles of Narnia is great, but he's written other stuff, just as a heads up. But here's what he says. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. Listen, though. But trying in a new way, a less worried way, not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside of you. Obeying Jesus, it's a response to the love that he has for us. Pursuing God's standard is a way in which we actually participate in the mission of God. In fact, it's, it's a way in which heaven breaks through to earth as Jesus prayed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so you revisit those things. How does heaven break through in our words if our tongue is bridled, if we're being meaningful in that which we say? How does heaven break through in that? When we use our words to encourage someone. When we use our, our words to express gratitude, when we use our words to speak the value that is in someone, when we use our words to defend the marginalized, when we use our words to speak up for those whose voice has been silenced, when we use our words to speak truth in love. That's how heaven breaks through in our words. How does heaven break through in, in our mercy and love towards the oppressed? Listen, this is actually the very heart of God. The very heart of God that would send Jesus to this place to walk this earth, leave heaven, which was perfect, to come here and walk amongst us to love the most undeserving of people, you and I. To show mercy to the most undeserving of people, you and I. When we love and when we show mercy to and when we visit in their affliction the people who are oppressed and marginalized in our society, the very heart of God, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through. And what about keeping oneself unstained from the world? I got news for you. In order to remove the stain to begin with, it starts with Jesus. And it starts with putting our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then beyond that, 
comes the putting off of old ways of life and putting on the, the new ways of living, letting Christ live in us. And there's nothing more resembling heaven than when Jesus' life is portrayed in yours. So this is what we're after. Don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Simple as it may be, there are simple places to start and it's still gonna be difficult. But that's the challenge from James this morning. And that's the challenge I lay before you today. Let's pray. God, we are, we are grateful that you would walk amongst us, that you would leave your place of heaven to come here. God, that you would desire to, to see the stains of sin removed from our life, to be washed white as snow. God, I pray that this morning that these words that... that You've spoken through James, that you've spoken. God, they would not be words that we simply hear, but that we would act on. God, that it would catalyze change within us, that we would seek obedience in you in all places. God, may your righteousness be that which we aim for. And may we find abundant life in you and you alone, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.